Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. When I think about end times events, learning about end times events, I actually don't characteristically think about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is, is, uh, gives us a great number of details about end times events, what will happen, what will uh, befall us in the last days. However, the keys to unlocking what's going on in, in Revelation and, and what, particularly what will um, lead up to those events and transition the events are found in two different passages of Scripture. The first being one that we've spoken of uh, quite regularly in Daniel chapter 9. The second being what we regularly call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And so over these next several weeks, as we talk about the, the uh, tribulation and what will, what will go on, we will look to the book of Revelation for our details, for the, the nitty-gritty of what will be going on. As a matter of fact, as we look next week at uh, still this first half of the tribulation, we'll be walking through uh, much of what Revelation has to say. However... When we look at the broad overview and a broad understanding of what the Lord is doing, Matthew 24 and Daniel 9 gives us, and Daniel 10, 11, and 12 in many uh, ways as well, gives us tremendous insight into end times events. Now, last two weeks we talked about the rapture. We believe it is indeed the next event on the prophetic, prophetic timetable that the Lord will call His church home. Following the rapture of the church, the book of Revelation splits into two distinctive scenes. As a matter of fact, as we look at prophecy, the last week, the tribulation week, is always split in half. A three and a half year half. Makes sense? A three and a half year half, right? Uh, three and a half years. It's split in two. And over the next two weeks, we're going to, uh, to look at the first half of what will be happening on earth. Now, according to our position, the church has been raptured out of the world. One of the common confusions or objections um, to this idea of the church being raptured out of the world is along these lines. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. I sure have. Playing the scenario out. If the church were to suddenly leave right now, it'd be a pretty big deal, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd think people would wonder what was going on. And because of Bible literacy, you'd say there's no way, or I would think, there's no way the world would not know that the Bible's correct if all of these people who claim to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ were suddenly taken out of the world. That's one of the, the prevailing reasons behind the mid-trib or the pre-wrath rapture position is that there has to be a circumstance. Um, it, it, it is not logical, they say, that believers would be taken out of the world before there's great tribulation 
Because then it's like, well, everybody would know, okay, now we've started the tribulation. Um, they, they would understand what the Word of God has to say. And this is a good contention. It's a good question. But it does make some assumptions. And it makes some assumptions that, that we can't simply overlook. And the first assumption it makes is it assumes that there will be pervasive Bible literacy at the time of the rapture. So much so that even unbelievers know the Bible's teaching on the rapture. But that's an assumption, isn't it? Now, if things were to happen today, if that were the Lord's plan, there is a good deal of Bible literacy. And we do believe that the Lord could come today, in which case, that's a great question. If the Lord were to come today, what, what would, and, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, what, what would the, the spirit of the age have to be that would just plain ignore this great sign? However, Paul warned us of something in First Timothy, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. He said this as he was writing to Timothy. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce-breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those things that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. He continues, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Paul says, from such turn away, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. So as Paul describes the last days, which we are in according to the Word of God, the Word of God calls these the last days, even though these days have gone on for 2,000 years, they're still the last days. As Paul speaks of these last days, he says that these things will, will uh, be happening, that there will be people and they just have no moral compass, no moral foundation, so much so that they become reprobate concerning the faith. They don't understand Scripture. They don't understand the Word of God. They probably, to some degree or another, according to our example, believe in a God and think they know God, but they don't have any spiritual understanding of the Word of God itself. And then Paul says in verse 13, I apologize for the wrong reference on the top of this, but in 2 Timothy 3.13, Paul says, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So if you think that the lies and the deceits are bad now, imagine what it will be like on the day when the church departs. Is it too much of a stretch to think that there could be a time coming, maybe even soon, when the world would have no clue what happened if a bunch of people were to just disappear? Where the world was so reprobate concerning the faith, was so uh, the, their spiritual leaders were so far gone from an understanding of the truth of God's Word that the world would truly have no answer. It could happen in a, in a generation, folks. The argument also assumes, the argument being that there's no way that people could not know 
that the Bible was true. Therefore, wouldn't the whole world get saved? Therefore, wouldn't everybody just uh, reject Antichrist if they knew that this was going to happen? This, the argument assumes, secondly, that there will be a large number of Christians on earth at this time. So much so that their disappearance would indeed be heavily noticed. But imagine a world, a world that's become greatly reprobate concerning the faith, Imagine a world that hates Christians and has rejected Christianity wholesale. Imagine a time similar to perhaps we might say soon after the uh, early church in those first generations after the early church if you've read any martyrdom stories. Imagine a time where Christians were hiding in caves for their lives. Imagine a time when you could not openly associate yourself with Christianity. Where through martyrdom, the number of true Christians on this earth becomes very few. And those who get saved are very far between. If the Lord had come in that second or third generation after the church began, with Christians hiding in caves, meeting in the dead of night, who would have missed them? Maybe not too many. Finally, final argument, and this one transcends. If the Lord were to come today, yes, Christians would be missed. There's still a lot of them. Yes, biblical literacy, at least in the Western world, is such that there would be a, a, a lot of understanding, perhaps, about what was going on on a, on a carnal perspective. But this third argument, I believe, is the most compelling we need to remember how strongly a man is able to convince himself of a lie. The Pharisees saw, physically saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they didn't talk about how Jesus was Messiah, how Jesus was from God, how Jesus had all power given to him by God in heaven and earth. What did they say? They conspired on how to kill Lazarus again. They wanted him dead. They didn't care that Jesus just raised a man from the dead. They were sold in their unbelief. The nation of Israel, three days after Jesus died, saw an empty tomb exactly as Jesus promised. But Israel did not turn wholesale to Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Israel saw that empty tomb and they hardened themselves against Jesus Christ in unbelief. So to assume that the rapture of the church would be sufficient evidence to overcome mankind's dogmatic unbelief in the truths of God's Word is to give mankind way too much credit. If we were all to disappear right now, I have absolutely no hard time thinking that the world could convince themselves of some strange idea that would completely leave out God. Completely leave out truth. Because mankind has an uncanny capacity to deceive himself. So the rapture happens. The church is taken out of the way. At, and at some point after, the Bible doesn't say immediately after per se, but at some point after, probably very soon after, the tribulation begins. Daniel 9.26 gives us two events that happen following the 69th week, but prior to the 70th week. The first event that is given is that Messiah is cut off. This is the death of Jesus Christ. This took place in 32-ish A.D. Coming 
close to about 2,000 years since Jesus Christ was crucified. Now, the second event that takes place that Daniel 9.26 speaks of is that the people of the prince that shall come will destroy the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, that's the temple. This was the total destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, of the worship system. Now, when Daniel is giving this prophecy, there is no temple in Jerusalem. It had been destroyed by Babylon, you recall. So it assumes a day when the temple will be rebuilt. We know that the temple was rebuilt in the days of Zerubbabel. In the days of Nehemiah, the wall around it, uh, the city was rebuilt. So Zerubbabel, Ezra, Esdras, um, Nehemiah, these men were instrumental in the, in the temple being rebuilt. It became Herod's temple in the days of Jesus Christ. And that temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., Approximately 38 years after Jesus Christ was killed, the Romans destroyed the temple, burned it to the ground, tore it to the ground brick by brick. And that is the event following the 69th week. Jesus, Messiah is cut off, and then the people of the prince that shall come destroy the city and the sanctuary. 70 AD, Rome. And so what we learn from this is not just that Rome destroyed the sanctuary. We know that from history. But what we learn is that this prince that shall come, who the Bible also refers to as Antichrist, will come out of Rome. Because the people of the prince that shall come were the ones that destroyed the sanctuary. Who destroyed the sanctuary? Rome. That means Antichrist will come out of the Roman world. You say, Pastor, that, that brings us to a problem. See, Rome as a civilization, as an empire, is gone. Well, sort of. Sort of not. The empire dissolved from within through corruption, through wickedness, but it, didn't, it was never conquered. You think of the great Roman Empire, the great uh, four great empires that God revealed or that God taught in Daniel, if you've been here the last few weeks. You had the Babylonian Empire, the head of gold. Then you had the Medo-Persian Empire, the chest of silver. Then you had the Greek Empire, the loins of brass. And then you had the Roman Empire, the legs of iron and then the feet of iron and clay. Rome was never conquered. And if you look at the Western world today, Europe and the United States in particular being the, the bulk of the Western world, Western culture, it's still very Roman, isn't it? The, the distinctives of Roman culture have never passed away. The idea of, of Roman culture, the, we call it the Western world. The Western world began with Rome, didn't it? Western culture began with Rome. Before that, you had Greek culture, and then you had Persian culture, and you had Babylonian culture. If you look at China, if you look at India, if you look at Russia, if you look at South America, they have very distinctive cultures, very distinctive from that which was founded in Rome. So while the empire of Rome is technically no longer in existence as an empire, the Roman Western world is still very much the dominant culture in this world, is it not? And the scriptures teach that it will remain the dominant culture until the time that Christ sets up his kingdom. So what this means is that Antichrist will come out of the Western world. United States, Europe, most likely Europe. 
But Antichrist will rise up out of the Western world. He will not be Chinese, at least in culture. He will not rise up out of China or out of India or out of South America. He will rise up out of Western culture. Now, following these two signs that were given at the end of the 70th week, Messiah is cut off, that's 32 AD, the the temple and the sanctuary destroyed, that's 70 AD. Following those two signs, the next event that Daniel sees is the 70th week, which will begin when he, according to Daniel 9, 26 and 27, that is Antichrist, the prince that shall come, makes a covenant with Israel for one week. In Daniel 9.27, it says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And as we talk about the first three and a half years of the tribulation, this leads us to our first characteristic of these three and a half years, which is Israel's regathering. Israel's regathering. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the Bible says this, At that time I will undo all that afflict thee, and I will save her that halteth, and gather her that was driven out, and I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you, for I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth, when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, saith the Lord. All throughout prophecy, God has promised that at some point, God will regather His people. He said it here in Zephaniah chapter 3, 19 and 20. He said it in Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. God says, I will bring you back together. He also says in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 and 22. Recall Ezekiel, we we learned about this thoroughly um, just prior to our, our end time series. God said, and I will say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore. This was the prophecy of the stick being made into one. God will bring His people back into their land. And as we continue to look at these seven years of tribulation, we will see why, both from a physical perspective and a spiritual perspective, that that Israel will be brought back. Physically, we'll see in a moment, the land will be at peace. Can you, in your mind, fathom peace in the Middle East right now? How many presidents of the United States have tried to to broker peace in that land? The history of that attempt goes all the way back to 1919. The attempts uh, based upon World War I, World War II, some of the dirty dealing that the Western world did with uh, the Ottoman Empire and uh, some of the lies that they told to the Ottoman Empire in order to dissolve the Ottoman Empire in order that they could have 
power over trade lanes and uh, unrestricted access. Really, the Western world has been uh, despicable, and, and we brought about the problems in the Middle East, but they're there now. Israel has its own place, but they are surrounded by enemies on every side. Just recently, we see ISIS starting to form. It's an attempt to bring back the power of the Ottoman Empire, an attempt to bring back an Arab state under a caliphate, a religious leader over all of the Arab states. And as we see these things transpiring, we can't fathom peace in the Middle East. So the Jews, many of them, stay away from Israel. They don't want to be there. Many are there, but many aren't. And the reason why they're not there is because they don't want to have to deal with everything that they don't want to be. Who would want to move to a country where you're surrounded by all your enemies? They all hate them. Every, every side, north, east, south. West is a little bit uh, safer because they've got Mediterranean Sea there. But they're surrounded by their enemies. So physically, what we'll see in just a few minutes is Israel will be at peace for the first time in a long time. So Israel, the Jews are going to say, we can go now, we can go home. Second, spiritually, God wants His people gathered together so that they can witness the salvation of the Lord. And so God will lay it upon the hearts of the Jews to return to their land. So the first characteristic of the first three and a half years is the regathering of Israel. And this is based upon our second characteristic, which is that there will be peace. For three and one half years, there will be peace in Israel. Now, as far as history has will, uh, seems to bear out, this will probably be the first time Israel has been at peace in millennia. It will have been a long, long time since Israel has been at peace. Consider with me Ezekiel chapter 38. We'll read verses 8, 11 through 12, and 14. God says, After many days thou shalt be visited. In the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel, which have always uh, have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations that they shall dwell safely, all of them. So God is actually speaking to a man, if you recall our Ezekiel series, named Gog of Magog. And Gog of Magog uh, is probably a king in the north, perhaps Russia, who is going to rise up and attack Israel in the last days. And one of the conditions uh, surrounding this attack will be that Gog of Magog will see that the nation of Israel is at rest in their land. They have peace. At the very bottom there, you see that last phrase, they shall dwell safely, all of them. And he continues, and he says, And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take and spo a spoil and to take a prey to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. Notice the imagery here. Gog sees this land as a land without walls. That indicates safety, does it not? You build walls around your cities and your land when your cities or your land are threatened. 
now we'd probably call them uh, missile defense systems, not physical walls, but it's the same thing, is it not? It is a barrier. It's a protective barrier against attack. The land is said to have much cattle and much goods, so not only will it be a safe land, but it will be prosperous. A prosperous land, a safe land. You say, okay, pastor, I see Gog of Magog. He's going against a land. How do you know that this land is Israel? How do you know that it's Israel that is at peace? Well, verse 14 of this same passage, Ezekiel thirty-eight fourteen. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? It's Israel that's being spoken of here. Gog of Magog is going to come against Israel at a time when Israel is at peace. When Israel need no walls. When Israel need no defenses. When Israel is prosperous. It is God's people that are dwelling safely in the land. God's people who we believe strongly to be national Israel at this time in history. Now they at this point remain in unbelief. Israel is regathered because of the peace in the land. They are prosperous, and this is all because they have made a covenant with the leader of the Western world. Presumably as well, this covenant has been brokered by the Western world with the Arab nations, presumably. And what we will see in our third point is somewhere along the line, a part of this covenant is that Israel is allowed to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Another thing that seems very far-fetched today, doesn't it? There's an Islamic mosque on the Temple Mount right now. Imagine the circumstances that must come to pass in order for Israel to be allowed to build their temple on Temple Mount and reinitiate a sacrificial system. But that's what's going to happen. That is our third characteristic of the first three and a half years. So we've seen that Israel will be regathered. They will be dwelling in peace. That's why they'll, one of the reasons why they'll come together. But third and finally, the temple will be in operation in this time. And we know this because we know what's going to happen at the midway point of the tribulation. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, Daniel sees this vision and what he sees is this. Arms shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. Here we see an account within history, and Tim, you're going to get to learn a lot about this here uh, starting tomorrow in our class. Uh, Here we see a, a circumstance, a situation, where a man is going to walk into the temple and he is going to desecrate it. He is going to cause sacrifices to cease, and he is going to desecrate the temple of God. Now, we have this account as having happened in history. 164 BC, a Syrian king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he had been very hostile toward Israel, and they had occupied Israel, the the Syrians had. Uh, The Syrians and the Egyptians had fought back and forth for the land of Israel for some time at this point. Until one day, Antiochus is on his way down to Egypt and he meets a man. That man's name being Romilian, 
And Romilian was a Roman ambassador, a Roman emissary. And Rome told Antiochus that if he didn't turn around and go home, that he's not only going to have a problem with Egypt, he's going to have a problem with Rome. Rome had been growing in power at this point. Rome was about to take center stage in the world. Antiochus knew there's no way he could fight Rome. So he turned tail and he went home. This made Antiochus very, very angry. And so on his way home, he decided to stop in at Jerusalem. And he went into their temple. And he took a pig, which of course is not clean. It's an unclean animal according to Jewish law. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar, therefore desecrating the altar. And he erected a statue of Zeus in the sanctuary of God and commanded that because the Syrian empire had been derived from the Greek empire, from Alexander the Great's great uh, conquest, he demanded that Israel change their worship system to that of, of a Greek worship system. He'd been to that point fairly tolerant of their um, Jewish worship. And so we see, and in history, in the um, accounts that we see, particularly of the Maccabees, they call Antiochus the abomination of desolation. They see Antiochus as the fulfillment of prophecy. You say, well, pastor, if that was the abomination of desolation, then, then what does this have to do with the future? What does this have to do with future prophecy? Well, then comes Jesus Christ. 200 years after Antiochus, 164 BC, Antiochus was around about 30 AD. Jesus comes on the scene nearly 200 years later. And Jesus says something very interesting in Matthew 24, verse 15. You're open to Matthew 24. You can look at it in your own Bibles or I have it on the screen behind me. He says this. Jesus is speaking about the end of the age and he's teaching prophecy and he says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Jesus says, look, the abomination, the true abomination of desolation has not happened yet. Antiochus has already come and gone. The temple has already been cleansed and, and, and they are using it again. And yet, Jesus says, the abomination of desolation is coming. He's not here yet. This unlocks a key for us in prophecy. This unlocks the door for us to understand that Antiochus Epiphany is only a type of Antichrist. He is a minor fulfillment of what Antichrist will one day do on a broad scale. And so as we understand this prince that shall come, this prince shall be high-minded against the Lord, this prince that shall desecrate the temple, we are looking toward a time when Antiochus Epiphanes, will, or excuse me, when Antichrist will do a similar thing to what Antiochus did, desecrate the temple of God. But this presupposes, does it not, that the temple is in operation? Wait a minute. Jesus is talking in 30 AD that, that there's going to be someone that comes and desecrates the temple. History bears out that all the way to when the temple was destroyed, this never happened. And since that day, there has not been a temple in, in Jerusalem. So it must be yet future. There must be coming a future day when the temple is in operation. And then at some point, that temple must be desecrated by some evil man. This is, this is the pieces that we must put together 
as we look at prophecy. And so in Daniel 9.27, we see this taught. And he, that being this prince of the people that shall, or the, the prince that shall come, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's seven years prophecy. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured out, or excuse me, poured upon the desolate. So in the middle of this 70th week of Daniel, in the middle of this seven years of tribulation, the prince that shall come will cause sacrifices to cease and will perform an abomination of desolation desecrating the temple. It's still yet future according to our Savior Jesus Christ. Since the days of Jesus, there has not been a, a historical event that has paralleled this even close. And that means that the temple must be in operation at some point in the future. That means that Israel will get their temple back. Jerusalem will have a temple once again. They will start sacrifices once again because that is a qualification for the work of Antichrist. So these three characteristics lay the foundation for Israel's role in the tribulation. But there is a world outside of the nation of Israel that will not have as good of a time for these first three and a half years. What will happen in these three and a half years for them? In Matthew 24, as Jesus teaches what we now call the Olivet Discourse, He tells Israel what to expect in these last days. And while there's some debate over the timing of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, just as there's some debate over the timing uh, of the events in Revelation, it seems, it's likely that Matthew 24, verses 4-13 through 13, describe the first three and a half years of the tribulation in regard to the events that are happening in, in a, on a worldwide scale. So let's read these verses together. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. It seems as though, I'm sorry I didn't do the second half of that there. It seems as though this is indeed relaying the first half of the events of the tribulation. And the reason why I believe this, 
that the fourth element of the first three and a half years is the beginning of sorrows is because we can indeed strongly parallel the teaching of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 13 with the events of Revelation 6 and 7 as the seals are broken and the trumpets are sounded with the the various signs and wonders and judgments of Revelation. Now, we're going to pick up with that next time. I didn't feel comfortable doing it all today. As it turns out, it looks like we would have had time. But that's okay. So we're going to pick up next time with the seals and the trumpets. The first half of the tribulation time as we see it in Scripture, as it's taught, and the events thereof. But as we close today, I would like us to apply. And I'd like us to apply through Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 29. Paul says this, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of the mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness is in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sakes. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. I want to make a uh, focus, or I would like us to focus on that final phrase. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God has made promises to Israel to regather them, to bring them back to their land, and then subsequently to bring them to a place where they will accept His Messiah and accept salvation. And when God makes a promise, the Bible says, He keeps it. The idea of repentance is to change one's mind. The gifts and the calling of God, God's not going to change His mind. When He says you have something, it is yours. When God makes a promise, it will come to pass. God has made promises to Israel. And as we're looking through these years of tribulation, what we see is that these promises will come to pass. God promised to regather His people. He's going to regather His people. God promised them um, salvation. He will give them salvation. God promised to rule over them as a kingdom that will happen in the millennial reign. And what I'd like us to think about as we close is that God has not just made promises to Israel. God has made promises to you as well, hasn't He? God has promised us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you have done that, if you have accepted the salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you're saved. You don't have to fear that God is going to revoke that promise. God has not revoked His promises from Israel regardless of how unfaithful Israel has been. God will not revoke His promise to you. God has not just promised you salvation in in the sense of eternal life, though, has He? This blessing of salvation has also brought with it the promise of salvation from your sins. 
that you do not have to serve sin in this life. As Romans chapter 6 describes it, Romans chapter 8 describes it, you are free from your sin. You don't have to obey your flesh. You don't have to submit yourself to your flesh. And if God made a promise that when you got saved, you were made free from your flesh, then you were made free. Now, whether or not you're going to live in that freedom is up to you. But the gift and the calling of God is without repentance. If God promised you that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. If that's what God said, then that's what God means. God does not revoke His promises. That means you can fight temptation. You can overcome. You can defeat your flesh. We have deliverance from our flesh. We have power over temptation. We have salvation from hell. God has promised us resurrected bodies, hasn't He? You kind of sick of your body? I'm a little bit. I spent a lot of this week tiling and on the ground. My knees ache. My back aches. I've never fully recovered from a fall I took several years ago. My back starts hurting when I do a lot of bending now. I get achy. I get sore. I wake up in the morning. I feel like a train wreck. I'm looking forward to a resurrected body. And you know what? I can. Because God has promised me one. It's coming. No more injury. No more illness. No more disease. No more forgetfulness. No more fears. No more sorrows. It's coming. And the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. If God has promised it, then it will come to pass, folks. But you know, God has also promised us that we can walk through this life in joy and peace. To those who would believe, would obey the promises of God, to those who would be willing to walk in fellowship. In 1 John chapter 1, did not John say, I write these things that ye may have joy and that ye might have it more abundantly? Fullness of joy is what John was writing to give us. And the key to 1 John The key to fullness of joy is obedience to God, confession of sin, walking in fellowship with Him. Do you know you can live day in and day out with joy? That doesn't mean you'll always be happy at what's going on. The circumstances won't always be perfect, but you can have joy in the midst of them. It's a promise. And the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. You've been called unto it if only you will live in it. So what we learn from the book of Revelation outside of the reality of God judging this world righteously and God chastening Israel back to Himself is we're reminded that God is faithful. God is faithful to His promises and faithful to His people and that God will be faithful to you. You read in God's Word some tremendous things both positively and negatively, just as God is faithful to give you salvation and to give you joy, God is faithful to chasten His children, isn't He? When we disobey. Don't think that you're going to get away with it because you're not. God is faithful. And I'd like us to leave our study today with the tremendous impact of considering God's faithfulness to His people Israel and what that means for God's faithfulness to you and I. 
And may God help us.